Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. Who's been to a word in your ear before? Oh, okay. So those of you who've been here before know that it's our proud boast that we start early and finish early. So you can be looking at the inside of your lids by about quarter past nine if you want, or watching a game of association football, which I understand might be taking place in some other area of London uh, later this evening. Welcome to the first word in your ear of of the year. I think it's fair to say that Mark, Mark and I worked together uh, for a long time on, on music magazines and music programmes, radio programmes, TV programmes, whatever. And during that time, we have spoken disrespectfully of pretty much everybody in popular music uh, over the years. And we've tended to accuse them of, of very much the same crimes that occurred again and again. That very often, they, they, they lose sight of the fact that, they, that musician is, is a kind of craft first and an art second. They lose sight of that very early on. And, uh, and if they have, have it one and a half hit records, many of them expect to be carried around in a sedan chair for the rest of their, of their lives. I don't think either of those accusations could be levelled at our guest this evening. Uh, who, who, in the course of a, of a career which, when you think about it, is pretty much unprecedented. You know, if you wrote it in a movie script, nobody would believe that anybody could do all, the, all those different things. But he, he's never been guilty, guilty of, of either of those sins. He's, uh, he's, in the next year, he's undertaking um, two tours uh, of the UK and beyond, so he may be playing in a city near you. Uh, the second of those tours is is with a full scale band, uh, which is marking an anniversary of it. I suppose what you might call his Anis Mirabilis, is, which is kind of forty years ago, uh, in what happened in, in nineteen seventy nine, which we'll come to later. Uh, but first of all, he's going to be touring uh, in a show where where he will play, and also 
answer audience questions. So in order to get himself up to, you know, to his speed <laughs> in terms of answering questions, he's very kindly volunteered to answer some questions from uh, Mark and myself uh, this evening. Would you please welcome the one, the only, Midjor. Yeah, this is like doing press-ups, isn't it? Preparing for the tour. <laughs> yes, and then there in three pictures we have uh, we have the the the, uh, the young Midge, the the, um, the the smash it sensation cover star, the Macintosh years, and, and the mature man. Can we say, can we say that, Midge? It's, it's like an advert for regain and reverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, okay. That, now, where we traditionally start, uh, Midge, uh, on word in your ears, we always ask people the same question, which is, when you were growing up, what kind of record player, music playing apparatus was there in your home? Can you remember? Yeah, it was a radio, um, quite simply. Uh, I, don't think we, I don't think we got a record player until I was maybe 10 or 11. Um, and even then, we couldn't afford to buy the records, so we borrowed all these records, old things from my uh, from my cousin. But the radio was uh, was constantly on in, in our house. What was on the radio? Can you uh, everything? Uh, because it was uh, it was the light service or the light home program, service, whatever it was. Light yeah, program, that. yeah, a light program. So, so you got everything from Mantovani to you know Telstar. Uh, so it was a very bizarre but fulfilling kind of musical apprenticeship. So long before I get anywhere near a guitar, these fantastic melodies were rattling around my head that I was hearing from the radio. Is that something, seriously, is that something you value looking back on it? You know, that you heard this wide range of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you... I, the, the first tune I can remember hearing um, that, uh, that, that made any sense to me was a thing called Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny. Oh. Which was uh, an instrumental, yeah, this haunting, yeah. beautiful instrumental, uh, played on a lap steel guitar. The do, da da da, da do, beautiful thing. And I think that's what, that's what made me think a guitar, something makes that noise. And I, I, I couldn't have been any older than like five or six or something when that was on the radio. So yeah, it was really important. So you 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 were uh, born in Glasgow in nineteen fifty. Three. Okay. Yeah. What's your earliest memories of Glasgow? It was shit. It was. It was. Um, <laughs> does, does, does it involve rain by any chance? <laughs> it was. You know, I'm saying it was shit. It was great because it was home. Um, but I was born in a tenement slum. Uh, you know, the outside toilet and uh, no heating to speak of. A, a coal fire. Uh, one bedroom flat type thing where the cooker, there was no kitchen, the cooker was in the hallway, you walked in the front door, the cooker was there. <laughs> One door led to the bedroom and the other led to the sitting room, which had a, a, a thing probably native to Glasgow, native to Scotland, a thing called a cavity bed. Oh, yeah, a, yeah. a hole it's in the wall, tenement. right, okay. Original tenement, yeah. So a, a proper and there tenement. And were five, there were five of you, weren't there? Uh, five of us in yeah. there, yes, uh, yeah. eventually, yeah. So, um, so it was pretty basic stuff. But you don't know it's basic because everyone else is in the same boat. So yeah. I didn't think anything of it. But I, I, I loved Glasgow because of its, its character and its people and the, the hard life that you had gave you something to write about, gave you something to escape from. Not to escape being Scottish, 
but to escape from the, the misery that, that your parents must have been in. Because it was hideous. My dad was a van driver and earned six pounds a week at, at his peak, six pounds a week. That's a tough... And what was the main Glaswegian characteristic? It was just that kind of uh, humour, well, tough humour. Absolutely, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, it's it's. Give us, give us an example of Glaswegian humour. Uh, well, you know, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't so long ago. I was um, maybe I don't know twenty years ago, or whatever. I was in Glasgow, and uh, a fairly noticeable character in Glasgow, and uh, and I'm I'm standing in the um, in the bank when you to write a cheque for cash. And the teller on the other side of the window never even looked at me. Nothing. And I'm writing the cheque out, and I you know, took cash, thanks very much, and I hand it to him. And without looking up, he says, uh, are you up to see your mammy then? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. You know, I'm not going to say, well done, love your records, you're a wanker. None of that. <laughs> Just straight in, you know. You think, that it's fantastic. It's great. So underplayed. It's beautiful. So how did you get on at school? Um, I didn't. I hated it. Um, uh, they wouldn't teach me anything I wanted to learn. Uh, it, was, it was a time of the, uh, the three R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic thing. And I, I was rubbish at all of them. No interest in them whatsoever. I could draw and I could paint um, and I could sing because singing didn't cost anything. Um, but I wasn't allowed... Uh, near a piano, the school had one piano. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let you touch it. Really? Um, I didn't have a guitar till I was ten. Um, so it was it was it was weird because I I excelled at underachieving because it, it was of no interest to me at all. You know, I've never had to use maths again. And you you, know? fi- you finished up in an engineering job, didn't you? When you were sort of was it fifteen or sixteen or something? I was yeah. I left school at fifteen uh, simply because of that. Simply yeah. because I, I asked to, to have as many music lessons as possible, and they couldn't see that maybe I I wasn't you know factory fodder, which I ended up being, of course, um, or, or that I was slightly different. And in fact, it was so ridiculous that nobody had said, "Okay, you can draw and you can paint." If you try a little bit harder at the other things, you can maybe go to the Glasgow School of Art. Yeah, yeah, but it was never yeah, mentioned. Yeah, 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 it was true. never mentioned at all. Yeah. So I was kind of left on my, my own to my own devices. And I, I left school at 15, as soon as I could. I went to a, an academy, uh, which was a tough school to get into academically. And I got in because I had a high IQ, not because I could do anything. And I left as soon as I possibly could. Got to an apprenticeship at the National Engineering Laboratories. And... Uh, a four-year engineering apprenticeship, and I left halfway through it. And joined a band, right? Well, I was playing in bands since yeah. I was, like, you know, 13 or 14. A band, of course, is just, you know, a mate with a guitar. Yeah. You, know, you, you find like-minded people. You find somebody else has got a guitar, you find somebody else has got a guitar, somebody's got a drum and a cymbal, and that's it. You, you sit in, you know, each other's bedrooms playing Beatles tunes over and over and over, trying to figure out what the next chord is. That's that's what you did, and then you you graduated into doing scout halls and all of that stuff. So I was playing in bands at weekends all the way through this. So were the Beatles the thing that that kind of they inspired were, you? Kind of. I mean, yeah, of course you you couldn't not be affected by the Beatles, but for me. It was the small faces. All oh, right. Okay. Oh, yeah, they were fantastic. I mean, I just loved the, the kind of the cheeky attitude, the great songwriting. You know, Stevie Marriott had a brilliant voice. Fantastic. But they were yeah. small. 
You know, they were yes. young. They were little guys with big <laughs> guitars, and they were like, I can do that. You could never tell they were small when you saw them all together because they were all the same height. That was amazing. <laughs> There's no sense of you could scale. All swap clothes, yeah. <laughs> That's right. No, no perspective. The, the guitars yeah. kind of swamped them, didn't they? Really? They did. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. started off with these massive, great big yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they were so cool. I think I think yeah, this was a particular. Uh, we're, we're looking at a cover of John Miles' Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton from when are we talking about? 1966? Yeah. Something like that? 66. Yeah. Was that a particular? Of course. I'd, um, this, this would have happened around about the, the British blues boom, yeah, you yeah. know, when all of a sudden Britain found American roots for some reason uh, and, and developed their own particular styles. So John Miles' Blues Breakers had been around for quite a while. They had a, a history of having brilliant guitar players. And, of course, there's a young Eric Clapton reading the Beano there. And it was just, it, it, it was glorious to me as, a, as a, an aspiring musician, a head full of broken bottles and, and, and attitude. I was sitting with my guitar listening to this stuff thinking, oh, the blues, that's me. That's me, you know, white guy from Glasgow, the that's blues. Right. Please. Same for every well, other white guy. Exactly the, the toilet, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, they had so, no more right than you did. Absolutely. In fact, they, they were a lot more posh than I was. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I just loved this. This whole British blues boom thing was great. If you had a guitar, you had to be into this. You had to take it to the next uh, level. And of course, this is what changed guitar sounds. Guitar sounds up to this point was like the shadows. It's clean and twangy and stuff. Yeah. And these guys kind of cranked the amps up and all of a sudden there was sustain and distortion and it was so ridiculously exciting for a young guitarist. So, yeah, I love this. Don't you think it's, it's amazing when you look at this cover that how overused word, iconic, mm -hmm. this cover turned out to be? Just because he's reading the Beano, isn't it? You yeah. know what I mean? Take away the Beano, it's just four blokes... Sitting, uh, you know, against a wall. Yeah, not, I can remember at school, uh, Mitch and I were born pretty much the same day, the same year, actually, so probably the same year. I can remember people buying the Beano and bringing it in and carrying it around because Eric Clapton read the Beano. <laughs> I mean, it became, you immediately you talked about, you know, whoever it was, Desperate Dan or Nasher or whatever, you know. They might and, have done better if they bought a guitar. Yeah, that's yeah. true, true. So do, do you play this kind of stuff? Do you, you play the blues? Um, I, I thought I did. But I, learned, <laughs> I, I learned all my uh, guitar riffs from Eric Clapton. In fact, there's, uh, there's a couple of things I have to tell you. I, uh, I, I used to have a little house uh, out in the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. And I say used to because... The one that was, burnt down? Uh, it, no, 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 no. The hurricane it got hurricane. it. And I rebuilt it and then the volcano erupted. <laughs> That's right. Before all that happened, uh, uh, Eric was on uh, Montserrat uh, recording at Air Studios and uh, playing guitar on Sting, one of Sting's albums. So uh, he turned up for a week to play on Sting's album. Sting wasn't even there, he just said play all over it. So he did, <laughs> and one day he played everything and then hung out for the rest of the week. And uh, we sat together with a guitar each in my little house playing old blues tunes. And he said, how do you know that? I said, I learned it from I learned you. It from you. Oh, really? <laughs> That's absolutely That's fantastic. Yeah, it's like right? identical little riffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you must be But yeah, one of your first bands was was named after a tune on this record. Is the that Stumble. Right? The yeah, Stumble. the Stumble, yeah. I was uh, I was 16 and brainless. And uh, yeah, we, we called ourselves the Stumble. 
but we weren't allowed to play any blues tunes because uh, in Scotland at the time the uh, the licensing uh, the, the licensing laws um, wouldn't allow you to perform in a pub or a club for money. Uh, so uh, the church ran the licensing laws. So we had no pub rock circuit where you could go and go up and play this kind of stuff or play some rock music or play your own tunes or whatever. You had to be a human jukebox. So back then, I suppose, with Slick, you'd be playing Son of My Father or, uh, you know, there we go, look at that. Really uncool look, but what a cool guitar I had. Look at that. Yeah, we're looking at, we're looking <laughs> at the group. Cool salvation. Guitar. This is, is Salvation. salvation. It was this all silver trousers and, uh, you know, wing collars and waistcoats and feather it was cuts. A, it was a kind of glam period, though, wasn't it? It was yeah. a glam time. 1971? 1972, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, Just when... Uh, there was something in the water in 1972. Something happened. Because we had, you know, David Bowie's yeah, yeah, yeah. album. We had... You know, Queen and Cockney Rebel and, you know, Roxy Music. All of a sudden, this thing happened, you know, musically and fashion-wise. So I suppose that was our... And you were in a, didn't you have a residency in a, in a, a disco in Glasgow called, called Clouds? Was it called Clouds? It was, a, it was yeah. um, it, Glasgow's big venue uh, yeah. was the Glasgow Apollo. Uh, it, it was originally the Green's Playhouse, which is like the, one of the biggest theatres or cinemas in Europe. And above it, there was a massive ballroom that held maybe two or 3,000 people. Huge place, big sprung floor. And we used to play there uh, every, every other weekend. You know, between, there was one in Glasgow and one in Edinburgh, so we didn't have to travel very far to do our... Uh, and playing state. covers, mostly covers. Playing covers, So what yeah. else did you do? Yeah, go on, give, you us go rep, give us your... Uh, give us your... Give us a set list. Set list. Well, right about this time... Yeah, yeah, right yeah, this yeah. time. Uh, we'd, uh, you know, we'd do, we'd do Virginia Plain, and we'd do, you know, we'd, we'd do some proper stuff. That, um, uh, this town ain't big enough for both of us, Sparks... Very high to sing, right? Good um, say. You know, oh, it, demanding it, stuff. It was, but it was good. We listen. We we would pride ourselves on the covers we'd do. Right. We yeah. wouldn't do any old crap. <laughs> what do you? But what a le- no, seriously? What an I, 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 I was talking. Well, like I was, you know, I said when I introduced you, that business of craft and art. You know, that. Uh, you know, people nowadays look down their noses at bands who play covers, you know. Oh, the Beatles were played I've covers. The Beatles were a cover. Every band coming out of Ireland was in a, was in a show band. All yeah, the show band, precisely. All the Rory guitarists. Yeah. yeah, Rory Gallagher, yeah. Gary Moore, you know, all these guys. Phil Lyman. They all, they all played in show bands because that's all you were allowed to do. That's how you learned your craft. You know, you didn't just go on a, a talent show and... And do a bit of karaoke. But also, it must have fed into the songs that you wrote yourself. You know, having having covered so many different types of, of music. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was the downfall. That really wasn't good. When you started writing your own songs, they were so derivative of everything you were playing at the time. Right. So I've got songs that I recorded on cassettes and whatever uh, that sound exactly like David Bowie or sound exactly like Roxy Music. Um, you know, just not as good. Uh, and that's how you kind of start the process. You don't go to school or college or uni to learn how to write a song. You have to start by writing songs that sound like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And then hopefully develop your own style as you go along. Yeah. So that was your set list, repertoire. Who were the audience? Oh, um, an audience. It was a disco. I mean, that's what you did. You, you were the, the visuals in, the, in amongst a, an evening of records. Right. So it was just a disco. It would start at like 7.30 at night and you would do your two 45-minute spots 
and the girls would all stand along the front of the stage like that, watching you. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then they put records on. When you so think. was that a rough old setup? Were, were the fights and you know? Not necessarily in that place, children. but yes. I mean, we used to. Uh, there was a place uh, at Cumnock Town Hall, uh, which is an airshow, which could have been a million miles away from where we were in Glasgow, um, and it's where the Bay City Rollers uh, got the look. Because people really did dress like that, with the tartan and the trousers. Three-quarter legs. <laughs> but you wouldn't laugh at these guys, because yeah. they were all skinheads, and they were vicious. Yeah. And as you're standing playing at one of these things, you would just see it happen. Something would explode, a fight would happen, and then the whole room would part. And both sides, it was like, kachis, and, you know, and the cavalry. And they just run at each other, bang! And you couldn't stop playing, because then it would get bad. Right. Yeah, it would get worse. Yeah. So do you, do you start to notice this quite early on? You know, you've got this the curiously kind of combustible mix, haven't you? Because you've got girls looking at you, mm. and then you've got drunk or, or kind of tense guys, jealous of the attention yep. you're getting from the girls. Do you, do you learn anything about how to, how to handle that, other than to just keep playing? You run. Um, you you would you <clears throat> you could pick up the the sign language, which was usually, you. Right, and you're standing playing, shaking, thinking, Jesus. Mitch is miming some kind of facial laceration <laughs> <laughs> for viewers at home. And it was it was <clears throat> it was scary stuff. I mean, it was it, it's kind of what it was, but th- that's not peculiar to Scotland. I mean, that's you get that everywhere. No, no, no. You know, drink and, and uh, rivalry and tribalism yeah. uh, and religion mixed through that in the mix and uh, all of a sudden you've got a, a good Saturday night. So when do, you, when do you turn professional? What year? 72. Were you seen in that group? When you joined Slick, were you seen in, in playing in Salvation and then auditioned on the basis of that? Well, how did you get into Slick? Slick was Salvation. Oh, it was the same group? Right. Yeah. The, oh, right, OK. The guy who was in the middle there, the big tall guy with the sparkly trousers, he was the singer. I was, oh, okay. I was the guitarist. I didn't even go for the audition. I went with a, the, the Stumble. Uh, I, yeah. I, I was still in Stumble at the time. And we had a keyboard player we didn't like. And uh, he wanted to audition uh, to join Salvation as a keyboard player. And I went with him to try and get rid of him. And they didn't offer him the job. They offered me job as a guitarist. So I joined Salvation as a guitar player, left my apprenticeship, uh, which is a dodgy thing to do in the first place. And, um, and then eventually, uh, two or three years later, the singer left the band. You know, we went to see a Dirty Harry movie one afternoon, came out and had her hair cut, and ended up with Quiffs, and we changed the name to Slick. And the two writers were um, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, I think, who'd written, um, they'd written Congratulations, they'd written Puppet on a String, they'd written Shangalang. So tell us a bit about that. So, yeah, they're, they're interesting, interesting guys. And, and, and much, much older than you guys, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were hugely, they were a, they were a hit factory. You yeah. Know? They were a hit factory in the 70s. And um, as you said, they did uh, the, the Rollers and Kenny and a whole pile of other things, and they seemed unstoppable. Some, for some strange reason, Bill Martin, the guy on the left there, at the top, um, was in Glasgow, uh, in the Glasgow Apollo, uh, when we were rehearsing upstairs in the ballroom. And he heard us, and he thought it was the record, and he stuck his head around the corner, and there's these four youngish guys, you know, playing this town ain't big enough for both of us, or whatever it was. 
And uh, and said, I'll offer you a record deal. And although it was a shit record deal, uh, but it was a great record deal because it was the only one we were ever going to get. <laughs> because the, the, everything was London-centric. You know, we had no independent labels. You know, nobody would go to Scotland to go and see any bands. A&R guys wouldn't be interested. So it was the only record deal we were going to get. So we, we did the record deal thinking naively that we'd be able to work our way out of having to record their songs. And we turned up in London to make a, a record uh, with a van, a three-ton van full of equipment, having driven it from Glasgow. Uh, we turned up in South Moulton Street, uh, just down the road, um, and went into the studio. And there's a backing track playing by the same guys who played all the Bay City Rollers records. They had the session guys in that morning, and they knocked it off really quickly. And, uh, and you just so you didn't need your van. Yeah, we did. Yeah, the van, yeah, we so you had no them. idea that you weren't being invited to play on your own records. No. How no, did you feel? <laughs> what, how did you feel? I, would, I was horrified. I mean, and, and Bill Martin took me out into the middle of the street in South Moulton Street, which is quite a busy little thoroughfare. And I'm, I'm a kid, and he's screaming in my face. Really? You know, absolutely screaming in my face. Get up there, sing this fucking song. You want to hit this? All of that, and I and then sang this thing, and when I got the phone call a few months later telling me it was number one, I didn't feel anything. It was, it was I had nothing to do with it whatsoever, other than just stand on top of the pops, mime and the thing. Did they so, direct you a lot? I mean, did they tell you what to wear and how, no. to, how to act in interviews and all that? I was still, I was still you. Wasn't yeah, yeah, you? It, it wasn't was, that the, kind of traditional slightly, boy band thing. We'd, we'd been we'd been playing the Scottish circuit for you know three or four years at this time. Yeah. I've been, I have to point out, I've been very kindly given by somebody who's here this evening a copy of the uh, record mirror and disc from 1976, where there you are, you made the centre spread. That's uh, me. In, in Slick. Uh, you didn't keep that for your scrapbook. I've got a pile of stuff, but I think these days everything's on the internet. I thought, I thought my kids might be interested one day. No such luck. <laughs> but, yes. but you write in the book about the, the, the transformational moment of being on top of the pops because top of the pops was just, you know, it, there's no equivalent now. It's like, I mean, you, you could just go from, from being unknown to, to being absolutely recognised in the street. The well, our, our top of the pops, our first um, appearance on top of the pops was on uh, New Year's Day. Uh, it must have been New Year's Day 1976. <clears throat> and um, what happened was top of the pops had invited four new bands who were all releasing singles in 76 to come on Top of the Pops for the New Year's Day special. So um, we came and we did our thing, and uh, within 24 hours later, all hell had broken loose. Everything had changed because we'd been seen on television. And we hadn't changed. We hadn't done anything. You know, we'd gone to London, do the programme, get on a train to get back home because you... You don't want to be in England in New Year. <laughs> we went back up to Scotland. And it was completely different. And, I don't know, 20-plus million people mm-hmm. would have seen that, that show. And it's just, it was unbelievable. So did people start to recognise you in the street? Oh, yeah, it was yeah. pretty recognisable walking about like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this this is at a time when everyone, everyone else had feather-cut hair and flares. That's right. You know. When, when I mean, the basic rollers happened a little bit before you, so did you look at the basic rollers and in, in any way envy what they had? Oh, God, no. no so, but no. but, but I, then you were, by, by working with Coulter and Martin, who wrote all their songs, yeah. and by going into the same kind of factory, you were headed that way, though, weren't you? Yeah, well, the problem is once you've 
done that, and, then, and that's why I keep saying it was naivety, once you have been tarred with that brush, it's almost impossible to shake it off. So you will always be seen as that because everything that happens in your life that's a little peak is a reference point. So if I do an interview tomorrow with a magazine, they'll bring up Joe fucking Dolce and they'll bring up Slick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Drop, drop the Joe Dolce slide, Dave. Um, talk among yourselves for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but I will mention it when we get yeah. to it. But it's but fascinating <laughs> that, that, that Malcolm McLaren, around this time, 75, 76, approached you, didn't he? And, and, and was already trying to put together the basis of the Sex Pistols. So yeah. how did he see, if you, if you were this person, as you say, tarred by the brush of being in a kind of, what seemed to be a boy band, how did he see that potential in you? Well, he, he saw me... In fact, it wasn't him who saw me. It was a guy called Bernie Rhodes who went on to manage The Clash. Bernie Rhodes, yeah. And um, I have to give you a little backstory to this. I was was associated... My management owned the Glasgow Apollo, so Slick would have been managed by these guys. This is before the first record had come out for Slick. It was in the offing, so it was going to happen, but we didn't know when. Um... And what used to happen is when bands came to play the Glasgow Apollo uh, and something broke, you know, their equipment or whatever, there were no rental companies up there unlike here, you know, you can't just phone someone up and they just bring it round. So they'd send somebody round to the local guitar shop and say, Midge is probably round there, go and find him and he'll sort you out with an amplifier or whatever. And I'm walking out this music shop And this guy stops me and said, will you speak to my mate round the corner? And he was English, which is an unusual thing in Glasgow. And uh, and I thought, oh, okay, this is what it's about. And round the corner, sitting in his beat-up old car, is the most bizarre, effeminate man I'd ever seen in my life, Malcolm McLaren. I didn't know it was Malcolm McLaren. He's sitting with a black mohair jump on a dog collar, which, again, was kind of unusual in Glasgow. In Glasgow. <laughs> I was going to say, that's brave. And, uh, <laughs> and he, they start talking to me, the two of them. And uh, I'm, I'm saying, oh, OK. Uh, and he says, oh, yeah, I used to manage bands and, uh, you know, New York Dolls and, you know, seditionaries or sex or whatever it was at the time, a shop and Vivian Westwood. And he's telling me all this stuff and his whiny voice. And, and then he said, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm putting this band together and, uh, you know, do you want to join? And I thought, well... You don't know what I do. You haven't asked if I'm a singer or a guitarist or even if I'm a musician. You don't know. What I, so I said, no, thanks. And the band was the Pistols, of course. So um, I, the reason they were in Glasgow was they had some slightly hot equipment in the boot of the car. So I didn't join the Pistols, but I bought an amp. All right. <laughs> Did you ever, when you saw what happened to them, were you regretful? No, no, not at all, because they put together the best band ever. It was great, you know. They, you couldn't imagine the Pistols without any one of no, them you being in the, the setup, and especially if it was going to be the singer. You know, Leiden was the perfect guy for that. So, how were the how were the Basinarellas regarded amongst the Scottish kind of musical fraternity at this time? Well, they'd been the, the, the Rollers had been around for a long time before they discovered the tartan trimmings. And, uh, and started having the hits. Trimming. And so they, they, weren't, they weren't a great band. They were okay. So they weren't really regarded as much at all. They were much better bands in, in Scotland right. at the time. Tear Gas, 
who became the sensational Alex Harvey band. Right, you know, yeah. There were bands like that doing the circuit, which were fantastic. You know, uh, The Beings, which had uh, Hamish uh, from Average White Band in it. So there were a lot of really good bands up there. So the rollers were just a kind of fluff thing. Right, right, right. They, so you, how do you then go from that to the rich kids? Pure luck. Um, when we 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 eventually slick, we <laughs> the straw that broke the camel's back was we were now being allowed to play on our own records. We played in the album and we, well, uh, but they insisted on writing the songs because obviously fifty percent of the money generated from a hit single goes to the writers. They wanted that, of course, and we weren't very skilled at writing songs. So uh, we turned up at the studio one day and the song that was written for us was The Kids Are Punk. And the opening line went, hey, hey, hear what they say. He looks just like James Dean. And we went, fuck it, that's it. I can't do this anymore. No. And we broke the contract. Uh, so we thought naively we'd get signed again, which we didn't. And I got a telephone call from, uh, from Glenn Matlock ex-Sex Pistol, um, saying he's put his new band, The Rich Kids, together, who were all over the papers at the time, even though they hadn't done anything. Everyone's talking about this band, The Rich Kids, going to be the saviour of rock and roll and whatever. <laughs> Is that because they had Glenn Matlock in it? I, guess it, 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 I think it was because Glenn was in there, um, and also the, I think Pete Silverton, who wrote for Sound, oh, yeah. was a big fan and right. whatever. Um, but he called me because another journalist, Caroline Kuhn, right. yeah. uh, from Melody Maker, yeah. had seen Slick perform live, and I think she fancied the bass player. And, uh, and she said, he's the guy that you need for your band. So uh, out the blue, no, nothing to do with me at all. And the I press was incredible when you, when you joined. I, I, I reviewed you for the NME, I remember, the, the, the Greyhound in Croydon in you, 1978. Mark, I have to say, dug out today... His old review I of the rich it in, kids. but it's so awful. And he was so shameful. He said, <laughs> "I said so you've got to read it out." He said, "No, I don't think I dare." But he's going to. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to read that time because it's just so awful. I was just thinking how awful it would be to, to, to actually read this sort of thing about you. Yeah, this was the the, the Croydon Greyhound. It says um, the band's image. Imagine a really pretentious. Just talk like a, talk like yeah, a rock critic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably wearing. Actually, I did have a pair of plastic fake leather trousers at the time. You know, and red shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Red shoes with yellow later. Yeah, the band's image of dry, clean determination was a monumental blast. Far more abrasive vocal command from Midgeor than Glenn Matlock and an underlying cardiac barrage with a bass that could warp floorboards at 100 yards. Yes. And here comes, here comes the payoff. Okay. This prize wanker here thinking he could <laughs> says if they could inject some of their creative energy into the slightly flagging world of new wave. <laughs> I love the way I take the whole landscape there and describe it as slightly flagging, you know, and, and produce something radically different, then the rich kids will pass the survival test. Can you imagine writing anything more? You must have looked at things like that and just howled with laughter. Oh, oh it's God, awful. that's fantastic. But of course, but yeah, you, you were support, I think you were supporting. Landscape, actually. Really? Landscape. Do you remember yeah. they had a hit called Einstein and Go-Go? That's them, yeah. But I remember it really well. And the press about the rich kids was enormous, just huge. It was. It was so much interest. But when the album came out, it was just, just didn't happen at all, did it? No. Didn't. And it was power pop. Was well, the kind yeah, of phrase, again, you guys are responsible for all yes. that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I did. Absolutely. It was him. 
bosses in the enemy. Who came up with new romantics, power pop, yeah. you know, all of this? It was, it was nonsense. But anyway, we, we fell on stony ground, of course. A bit. We were somewhere between Elvis Costello and the Boomtown Rats. I don't know. We just, we just didn't get it at all. I think, you know, Steve was 17. You know, good-looking young kid on guitar. It was, you know, we were a vibey little band, but we just had, we weren't given enough chance to, to grow up a bit, you know. Did you despair at this point? You know, you've had two shots. Did you, did you think yeah. about, I'm going to jack it in, I'm going to go back and become an engineering apprentice again? Well, you know, I mean, at this point I was well, you know, I was well... Uh, sconced and you know being in London my, my feet were under the table I would, you know the, the band was changing what was happening around the band was changing um, if truth be told the thing that split the band up wasn't musical differences like you know the, you do uh, it was a synthesizer you know I was rusty uh, the tall one at the back there uh, was running a little night in a club in Soho Billy's and this night was Bowie night. And, uh, and, and a lot of the kids who had started the whole kind of new wave punk explosion had moved on and walked away from it all because it was now high street fashion and it was boring and it was, you know, th third generation crap punk bands. Um, you know, they moved away from it and they wanted something else. So they reverted back to their original love, which was Roxy Music and David Bowie and all of that mixed with a lot of music coming out of Europe of all places. Mm -hmm. You know, this electronic stuff. So, Rusty and I used to go to these nights, you know, Steve Strange and all these kids all starting to dress up and, and this, this emergence of technology uh, getting involved in music, you know, with synthesizers, drum machines, all of that. I started getting really influenced by what I was hearing and wanted to integrate this, not disco stuff like a synthesizer would have been used for, but to integrate synthesizers with a rock band. And I thought, the rich kids, we could do that. And we started doing it, and Glenn and Steve absolutely hated it, and that's what split the band up. So they were the kind of rock and roll purists, they felt that... I think they thought they'd get... Glenn was quite right. He said, if we're going to have a keyboard player, let's get somebody that can play, because I couldn't play. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, so he so had a point. It's a fair point. It's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah. but, but he got he missed the point, because the point was, you, although we were using technology, it was the exact same ethos as the punk bands. I can't play, but I'll get a guitar and I'll learn three chords. That's how it all kind of started. So it's the same ethos except I'll buy a synthesizer and a drum machine, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll sit and do that and record it in my bedroom. And that's what it was all about. It was about the creativity and the, and the, the, the freedom. To, it wasn't about being Rick Wakeman yeah, yeah, and yeah. being a great player, you know. Well, Dave and I we didn't actually, we weren't part of the, the team that invented the term New Romantic, but we were working at Smash Hits at the time, and, we, and the Face magazine actually came out of our office, didn't it, for a while? And we were probably the only two kind of pop and pop culture magazines in the country at the time that really benefited from bands looking this colourful. It was absolutely, because you couldn't print pictures of Blue Rondo a la Turc or, or Spanish. And our ballet, whatever, in, in the enemy and Melody Maker, expected to look any good. So we white, loved yes. it when we had pictures yeah, of yeah, Visage. Yeah. You know, it was absolutely fantastic. So tell us about the Visage experience, because that then starts to happen at this time. You know, how do you get involved with that? Well, the, the rich kids uh, kind of, you know, we were doing a split thing, uh, no, no future, didn't know what we were doing. And um, Rusty and I wandering around the streets of London, he was feeding me because. I had no money. We were absolutely skint. And uh, Rusty 
is a very vibrant, loud character. <laughs> he comes up with a million ideas uh, an hour. And one of his ideas, he said, oh, yeah, let's get this band together with all our favourite musicians and, you know, we'll make some electronic music. And I went, stop, OK, stop, let's do that. So we did. We got, uh, we got John McGeer there, the second from the left, uh, from, uh, from Magazine, uh, Barry Adamson from Magazine, Billy Curry from Ultravox, Dave Formula from Magazine, all bands, musicians that we really rated and respected. And um, I, I came up with a name and I designed a logo and you know, off we went. We started recording, writing and recording electronic music simply to play in the clubs that Steve and Rusty were, were doing. So, uh, but, but, uh, Forgive me if I say that the magic ingredient, apart from your music, was Steve Strange, yeah. wasn't it? So, but who had no musical ability at all, is that right? None. <laughs> I think at Smash Hits we always used to call him the Welsh dresser. Do you remember? <laughs> In a very fond and affectionate way. <laughs> but you're right, Steve brought yeah. everything else. You know, he, he, the, the look, the connections, the fashion, the makeup artists, the, the, the front of it all. Look at it, look, we're all boring buggers. Look, all of us. Yeah. And there's Steve with the big quiff and the big shoulders, yeah. you know. But he so, didn't even do very much, did he? He wasn't even particularly animated or anything, but he was just so clearly had spent so much time getting ready. <laughs> but you also have to remember, this was the era of the video. Yeah. So you didn't have to be charismatic. You didn't have to be a, a great front man doing somersaults. This was a unit, this, a collective, that was never going to play live. You know, we weren't a band. We were a, a, a combination of, of characters, a bunch of musicians that got in the studio and made some music and then went off and did our other things. That was it. So it didn't have to be anything other than the face, the character, you know. So and why, did it, why did that evolve? Was it, was it anything to do with... Dave had a theory, we were talking to him earlier on today, about the idea that, that punk uh, gigs and, 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 and two-tone was actually quite violent. You know, if you went to those shows, I can remember there was just a lot of fighting, a lot of grief and a lot of aggression. And that if you dressed up and formed these little clubs where there was a kind of door policy where you couldn't get in unless you were looking absolutely fabulous and made a real effort and part of the club, then when you got inside, it was actually a completely different atmosphere, wasn't it? It was yeah. really, really kind of calm and uh, safe yeah, I think you're probably quite right. Was that right. something to do with that? I think yeah. it probably was. I yeah. think the grief that uh, the kids that went to Blitz got was being on the bus, dressed the way they were, <laughs> yeah, yeah, going exactly. there. Yes, exactly. You know? so, and, and, they, and they did get grief. You know, it's yeah. crazy. But inside the club, it was perfectly safe. You know, you, there were no photographers, and they were, you know, unless they were part of the clique. And yeah, they, yeah. They were, so it was the insiders were there. Yeah. And the weird thing was that, you know, any movement, you know, whatever it happens to be, however crap the name might be, whatever it is, you know, it, it has, it's not just musicians, it's not just kids dressing up in there. You could look round that room and see, you know, future fashion designers and future filmmakers and, and all sorts. They, they gravitate to, to that. That's what they want. To, they want to be there. They want to be in amongst these people. Yeah. You know, I saw, I was there the night the um, uh, God turned up because yeah, all these kids were all massive Bowie fans and Bowie turned up at the club and all of a sudden all these really cool, haughty, you know, lofty people melted. Just melted, Just, yeah. just, just went apart. into absolute hysterics and wet themselves because yeah. Bowie had turned up, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It was just fantastic. Yeah. But, but it's great when you get someone like Bowie going there to choose Steve and three others to be in the Ashes to Ashes yeah. video. You know, that's influential. It is. As, as flippant and silly as it might seem... That was making its own little statement. 
Do you think in many ways that this was more significant than punk rock? Oh, now there's a thing. I, I don't know if it was. I still think it's the same ethos, just different tools. It was all about DIY. It was all about make it up. The kids that went to Blitz hadn't, hadn't anything. It was a three-day working week. It was the middle of Thatcher's Britain. You know, there was nothing going on. The club itself was in a really seedy part of town. It was horrible. And, and they went there, they raided their granny's wardrobe or did whatever, they were creative. They put this whole thing together without having two pennies in their, in, in their pocket to rub together. So it was, it was entirely DIY. Make your own music. If you've got a synthesizer, borrow something, record it, do whatever. Sound on sound, put little things and put out a record. And that was the ultimate punk ethos. It wasn't about big record labels and loads of money thrown at That's it. That's a really good point. And so also I, the managers would tend to be people who had no managerial experience. The photographers had never taken photographs before. Yes. The video directors didn't know one end of the camera <laughs> or the other. So everyone was just making it up, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Of course they were making it up. Yeah. You know, I was there for the, you know, one of the first Spandau shows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're saying, you know, Robert Elms, and, you know, the, he was a you know, journalist and broadcaster, and uh, he was there as like as like the the sixth member of Spandau, but he couldn't play, so he read a little poem before they came on that's and announced right. the band on, and you know, but that's that's how it always was, you know. Yeah. Now I mentioned earlier that you're doing two to tours over the next nine months or whatever, and this is the second of them uh, with, with with a band which is starting in in October. And this is to mark the fact that it's 40 years since 1979 where you did this extraordinary range of things, didn't you, in that year? It was bizarre. I mean, you think Slick was 76 and by the end of 79, three years later, I was right in Vienna and producing the Visage album, which both kind of charted in 1980. So going out to celebrate that one year is quite something. It's, it's a bizarre thing to do. It's interesting looking back at it because you think, how could that possibly happen? How can I have two albums in the charts with two different projects, two different bands, or at the same time, or two but, singles in the charts at the same time? It's unheard of, you know. And it gets even more extraordinary because there's one stage, if I remember rightly, where you were pretty much getting up in the morning and, and promoting the Visage album. In the afternoon, you were writing songs for Ultravox who, who wanted you to join. And in the evenings, you were, you, were, you were out on tour in America playing live with Thin Lizzy. So, you know, how, I mean, how did that, how did that happen? It is one of those just things. Like we were talking about this earlier, you know. I still have to pinch myself and decide, did Michael Jackson really marry Lisa Marie Presley? <laughs> Presley? And was Midjur ever in the Lizzie, you know? <laughs> while while simultaneously a, <laughs> a member of Visage. It's amazing. So what happened? Gary Moore had left, hadn't he? And they just rang you. Yeah, I was, I was in the studio. Uh, yeah, I joined Ultravox, although nobody was interested in hearing that because Ultravox were uh, deemed dead and gone. They'd been dropped by the record label and John Fox and Robin Simon had left and all that. So I'd joined the band. You know, there was no point in talking about it. Um, and I was in the studio putting the finishing touches to the first Visage album. And I got a phone call uh, from uh, Phil Linnett's management. And they said, look, Phil's going to call you in a minute. He's in Arkansas. So the phone rings and it's <laughs> Phil. He's in Arkansas. He's in Arkansas, yeah. And he said, uh, Gary Moore's out the band. Uh, he hasn't turned up for a couple of shows. Um, can you come out tomorrow and finish the tour? We've got another three weeks to go. <laughs> really? My brain was screaming, you're not good enough. 
my heart was going, go! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> America, I'd never been to America. Yeah. So I went home that night, and uh, by the time I got back to my little flat, on the doorstep was a bunch of cassettes and a set list and a plane ticket and an itinerary. And it's like three o'clock in the morning or whatever. So I get back and I'm packing my case and thinking, oh, fantastic, this is great. And um, I look at the itinerary and it just says, if all I needed to know was what time's the car coming to pick me up, take you to the airport, great. So I got my big ghetto blaster because it was way before Walkmans and stuff and my headphones and I thought, I'll learn the set on the plane. And they flew me out in Concord. So, <laughs> So you didn't I bet they only had 20 minutes to do it. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> the one time you don't want to be on Concord. Yeah, <laughs> learn the entire I'm, set. I'm sitting in Concord with a big ghetto blast and my big headphones and some guy sitting next to me with a big cigar <laughs> thinking, what the hell's next to me, you know? I'm going, America. That must have been <laughs> thrilling. I'd say you were I'm playing to what size audience? They were very well, big we're, then. They were, they were special guests to Johnny. So <laughs> oh, it was yeah. megadomes. Yeah. It was big, big. Yeah, it was like... 10,000 big, no, bigger than that. 20, 30,000. 20,000 seats. And, and we, we, did a, we did a festival in the middle of it all with um, Santana and Aerosmith and all of that. That was 100,000 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and you so could learn, you did the learn those songs. crowd you never played in front of. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and, and I learned, uh, at the, the first night I got there um, was in New Orleans. So to fly to New York, connecting flight down to New Orleans, and I sat in a hotel room with Scott Gorham, the, the guitar player, and learning all those bloody harmony guitar parts because every song had one. Yeah, they're one. all twin yeah. harmonies. And they're, they're almost interchangeable. So I was petrified I got on and screwed it up for them, but it was great fun. That's but you fantastic. said you you say in your book you weren't up to the twiddly bits. I'm not fast. I'm I'm kind of I learned from Eric. Remember slow hand. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, I, I don't do all that, all that stuff, you know. Right, right, right. But you enjoyed and you, the and you were writing songs for, for, for Thin Lizzy as well at one point, weren't you? Well, Phil and I had been friends. I, I, I saw Thin Lizzy play um, the Picasso Club in Glasgow uh, in the very, very early 70s, when they were a three-piece. I think maybe the first time they'd come to the mainland. And, uh, and I saw them because I used to be a fan of Skid Row, the original... Irish three-piece right, Skid Row, yeah, yeah. Uh, who Phil used to sing for, I think. So I'd heard about Skid Row, uh, I, I mean, uh, and through reading an article about Skid Row, they mentioned this other band, Thin Lizzy. So I went to check them out. So I'd known Philip on and off for a few years, and met up with him again when I when I moved to London to join the Rich Kids. So we were kind of mates, you know, but you little, little and large of rock. You, you think you think it would you, you need a different part of your brain somehow to apply yourself music to those two different things, but it probably Music's, doesn't. No, know. no, no. Music's either good or bad. Yeah, and it's, it's you guys that categorise yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's fair enough. Yeah. It's <laughs> so. Ultravox, as you say, you know, at that point when you joined, they were, were kind of dead and buried, you know, John Fox had left and so forth. How did you get it back? How did they come back? Um, uh, you know, uh, luck again. I think luck, luck's played a massive part in my, my life. Um, you know, when I... I, I it, it had, had someone written down, you know, job prospects with Ultravox, you, would, you wouldn't have gone near them with a barge pole. You know, as I said, they owed a fortune to the record label. Uh, they'd been dropped, uh, you know, lost the singer, lost the guitarist, all of that stuff. They already had three albums out. But the, the band was such a good band. We, we pulled our money, which we didn't have very much of. We pulled our money together to get one day in a rehearsal studio to see if it would work. 
and we walked in and we plugged in and the noise we made was magnificent. It was huge, synthesized bass, you know, guitar, drums and drum machine, Billy Curry's keyboard sounds. It was just, it was electric. It was fantastic. And uh, we managed to con Thin Lizzy's management into, you know, taking us on. And, um, uh, and, and, and we were such a pain in the back, backside as a band. We had record labels looking at us because they thought it was quite novel that I had joined the band. So there was maybe something there, they're not sure. And uh, they, they kept saying to us, um, do some demos. And we said no. But sometimes when you make a demo, there's something magical about it you can never recreate. So we just kept saying no. And when you're desperate for a record deal, that's not the right thing to mm. say. Mm. You know? So they eventually said, we'll give you two days in the studio. Let us hear something. So we went in, we recorded our first single. We gave them Sleepwalk as a, as a that finished track, done, finished, mastered, and they signed us on the strength of that. Right, right, right. And then Vienna comes along yep. and is kept from the number one spot by... Yeah. <laughs> by John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, I, I don't I have a problem with that. I won't go yeah. into... I was, I, was in, I was intrigued to read in your book, you know... You, Vienna becomes an enormous great hit. Yeah. But you write very well about the, the kind of lag between uh, success and the fruits of success. Oh. Uh, and, and, you know, during Vienna, to find out how Vienna's going, you're having to use a local phone box because there is no phone in your house. There's clearly no mobile phones and so forth. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of put in pennies in pretty much to find out whether you've gone up to number 17 and so forth. That's it, absolutely true. Um, it's, it's kind of how you did it, you know. You you would you'd go down to the phone box in the morning, uh, pretty stinky thing, and you'd, you'd phone the office and say, "Well, uh, how are we doing?" And they'd say, "Well, the reorders have just come in. You know, there's another twenty thousand just been reordered by HMV or whatever." You go, "That's, that's great, fantastic," and then you'd go back again at six o'clock in the evening or whatever, and you'd phone up again and say, "How did we do?" Say, "Well, you've sold those twenty thousand, and they're about to put another order in tomorrow." You know, all the time I'm standing there counting out the pennies to make sure I could make the phone call. Yeah, yeah. Because your skin, you haven't got anything. It can take years before money, royalties. In those days, royalties would actually generate uh, and, and come into your account. So I remember getting a phone call from my manager saying, you should think about buying a house. I said, buy a house? I can't even buy a burger. You know, what are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> he said, the money's going to come in. You know, you're going to have to start thinking about what you're going to do with it, you know. But the one reward that you notice quite early on is that as soon as you've got a really big hit record, girls just suddenly find you magically attractive. I was magically attractive and slick, I'll have you know. <laughs> <laughs> but not as magically attractive, is that fair to say? What was bizarre, more bizarre, was that men started turning up at the shows. Because in slick shows, you didn't, didn't see any men. There were no men. But Men, men in, in, in Macintosh, fashionable oh, belted Macintosh. it's bizarre. It's like, looking yeah. at, it's, like a, it's like a horror movie. You'd look out into the audience, <laughs> and there's all these guys with their moustaches all going... <laughs> it's, it's really weird. It's a weird thing to be a kind of odd fashion icon like that. 
So, uh, yeah, that was How did that was you arrive at that sort of Ultravox aesthetic? Because watching those videos, you know, you used to think, well, you know, there was dry ice and there was, there was suits of armour and then there was wistful-looking, rather fabulous blokes with pencil moustaches staring off into some distant spot, you know, and there was a kind of European aesthetic to it. Sunday, afternoon, Sunday afternoon movies on telly, that's that probably it? what it was. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, you think this was, a, this was a period of kind of, you know, Blade Runner. You know, I think I think of Ultravox as like Blade Runner. You can't tell whether it's set in the past or the future. You know, it's got a bit of everything in there. The look, the, the sound of it, the yeah. videos, the imagery. You know, sometimes it's film noir from the 40s and sometimes it's futuristic with the electronics. And it was a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... And, and the, the moustache came about because I was, I was on a train from Glasgow to London, bored, and I went into the toilet and came back with a moustache. I hadn't, I hadn't hair, by the way. I, no, I, I was going to say, I was just suddenly grown. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> 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 pushing really hard. Forcing out a moustache, right. yeah, yeah. That's right. So, Band-Aid, Live Aid, you'd known Bob Geldof for a while, yeah. presumably before yeah. that happened. Now, at this point, his career was, let's be frank, was all over, wasn't it? It was kind of finished, yeah. yeah. I think he was at home looking after, looking after babies. You know, and, but you were doing well. Yeah, I was still out there doing my doing my thing. Ultravox was still uh, in existence, and I think I was, I think I was promoting a solo record at the time. I can't remember, but yeah, I was still out there doing it. Yeah. And he contacted you and said he'd seen the Michael Burke report panorama. And I happened to be on the the tube, uh, the TV show in, in Newcastle um, that uh, Paula Yates co-hosted yeah. with Jules, and uh, and Bob had called. Paula about something and I'd, I'd known her for years and she handed the phone to me and said he wants to talk to you and that's how he, he had just seen the Michael Burke footage uh, the first footage that we'd seen of the famine and he said I want to do something but I'm not in a position to do it will you help and I, I hadn't seen any of this and I, I'm instantly my thoughts were oh god well, I'm a bit busy you know I've got an album and I've got this and I've got this but of course, by the time we met up, I'd seen the footage. So I knew mm. exactly what he was talking about. Mm. Um, and that was where we came up with it, the, the obvious conclusion that we're not capable of doing anything but maybe write a song. Um, we had to write a song. We had to make it a Christmas song because um, a record over the Christmas New Year period, the charts freeze and you, um, you, know, you can generate twice as much from a number one record at that time. So it's quite cold and calculated what we did. Uh, we had to write a song. We couldn't just cover a, a Christmas song because, as I said before, 50% of the, the money generated from any single was to the writers. Mm -hmm. So we had to write something and then give the writing royalties to the, eventually what became the Band-Aid Trust. Um, so and he um, already had a lyric that he, he'd pretty he'd, much written. He had something that I think the Boomtown Rats had turned down. That shows you how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't tell me that. He didn't... <laughs> So I, I, went, I went home and, and, uh, and I, I, I had my little Casio toy keyboard on my kitchen table and I came up with the, uh, the, the da, 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 da thing and recorded it on a cassette and sent it to him and he said it was shit. And then he came over to my place the next day with a guitar with hardly any strings on it. He, he plays a right-handed guitar left-handed so it's upside down. And he started singing me this thing. And of course, every time he sang it, it was different. So I had no idea that he'd actually written this. I, th I thought he was making it up, and I was being, you know, quite graceful at that point. And uh, I, have, I ended up just recording him singing it on a cassette because it was altering all the time. There was no melody. It was all over the shop. It was just... 
And uh, I just finished building my first studio at the bottom of my garden. So um, I said, well, leave it with me and I'll put, I'll put these bits together. Um, and I spent four days in the studio playing all the instruments and arranging the, the song. And of course, the, the last thing was, it's a song with no chorus. It's a really weird structure. Yeah. Um, he was in the studio and he said, we need something like, you know, Happy Christmas War is over at the end. We need that kind of sing-along thing. And we came up with a... We hadn't put the Feed the World... And he was yet. the kind of... Well, he was the, the guy who got all the people to take part and to sing, but you were the musical director, weren't you? I mean, Dave and I actually were both both there on that Yeah, thank God it wasn't the other way around. It'd be a very yeah. empty picture. It'd be a shit record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you... It always interested me that... And I can remember seeing... I can remember seeing people step up to sing their to sing their single lines yeah. and what incredible pressure in front of all those other people to can, yeah, well, you, right. can you imagine yeah. standing there in that, that microphone in a big empty studio with a camera in your face and, everybody and, watching, and all of those other turn. people all against the window on the other side it, it, it reminded me of people t- uh, lining up to take a penalty a penalty at a penalty shootout yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it was yeah. extraordinary yeah, but, but, with all of the other strikers from every other, yeah, every exactly, other yeah, exactly. team watching you yeah. watching but of course musicians are fantastically competitive aren't they Yes, they are, they, and they can be, but I have to say they were incredibly good that day. Uh, they were on best behaviour. You know, they came in and uh, somebody coined the phrase, they checked their ego at the door, and it kind of, kind of was that way. It was great. Yeah, I can remember Phil Collins being there and status quo, and Phil Collins was 33, I think, at the time, and considered to be a kind of, just an old duffer, you know, uh, and the idea that he was even mixing with people who were in their in their mid twenties. It's just a real. It was a real generational divide, wasn't it? Well, you know, uh, did you, uh, can you think of any other drummer who could have done what he? I don't know. It was brilliant. It was yeah. fantastic. That he was there, but I just that uh, he would normally never have associated with people like that. It was going to be from a completely different generation. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think just, uh, Phil's probably just born the same day as us. He's, yeah. he's, 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 yeah. he's around about the same age. You know, it, I think musically. Uh, the genre that he came from was seen radically as yeah. radically different from anything that was up there. But you know, it wasn't about that. It was about getting the biggest names no, no, you could possibly no, get. I'm you know? just saying it was just an odd competition. Uh, yeah, it was an odd competition. You wouldn't think that now. Poor guy but just sat you, there for hours. How did you cast great. those lines? How did you decide? It must have taken a huge amount of diplomacy to decide who was going to sing which line. Nah. How did you keep everybody happy? I didn't ask them. Uh, we just, I got them to sing a, a couple of lines each and then realised that I hadn't written, we hadn't written enough lines for everyone to sing yeah. something. So we just kind of went, well, that half's pretty good from him, and then we'll cut it there, and then he'll we'll put that half in there. So it wasn't... There's a, there's a moment in the making of video where I'm sitting with the lyrics and a pen, and I'm drawing lines through the middle of the lyrics, trying to figure out who's going to... Where, we, where the split points are, so that everyone had a crack at singing it. Yeah. And it was more important that they all sang a line than it was uh, Bob or I sang a line. So yeah. we're not on it, and we're, we're in the chorus somewhere, you know, doing, doing whatever. But it wasn't a decision that you sat and made. It was a realisation that, oh, shit, they're all here and we don't know who's going to do what. Right, right. So then, obviously, the show in uh, in summer of the following year, um, do you remember much about that? Uh, yes. Um, it flew by. Um, everyone had 18 minutes uh, on stage. Um, and before you uh, uh, walked on stage to do your bit... Uh, the the stage manager uh, said to everyone, he, he said, uh, okay, you've got 18 minutes. Um, when you walk on either side of the stage, there's a traffic light system. So when you walk on, it's green. Uh, it's 16 minutes, it'll turn amber, and you won't see it turn red because the power goes off. And that's how they kept everybody in time, so nobody could overrun. Um, so it was a scary prospect. 
walking out, especially Ultravox, because we had flaky electronics, to say the least. So we chose songs that needed the least electronics so that hopefully nothing would go wrong, which it didn't. And didn't, um, Bob, didn't Bob move your slot? Oh, he's a bastard, yes. Yeah, no, tell, tell, <laughs> tell that story, because it's, it's absolutely astonishing. He wanted to appear... For the Royals. For the Royals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Charles and Diana were there, and they were only allowed to stay for the first hour. And it wasn't the fact that they <clears throat> got changed. It's, the, it's how it was done. It was very underhand. And, um, and I was told it was something to do with, you know, can, I, can we swap places because it's something to do with Adamant's equipment. And blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, it's fine. I don't care. I'm not bothered. And it wasn't until after the, <laughs> the event that I went out to the kind of backstage bar where all the press were there. And they're all saying, how does it feel to be shafted by your pal? I said, what do you mean? And I said, nah, nah, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. But that's what I mean about musicians. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, that's the way it goes. Now, you, you know, you, you, got, you got involved in video a lot. I mean, you, you, you directed video. Is that something you look back on with fondness now that it's kind of... The video age appears to have gone away now. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was just it was it was a, a continuation, an extension of everything that else that you did. I mean, most artists make the music and give it to the label, who stick it in a sleeve that the artists have nothing to say about. Uh, and then they are told uh, on Monday morning you're going to make a video, and they turn up in an empty studio. They've got no idea what the video is about and the song is then interpreted visually uh, into some other idea that the director's got, yeah, which yeah. has got nothing to do with the music. And we just thought, hold on a second, this is, this is wrong. You know, we, we, we spent ages working on artwork and graphics and, and having the sleeve you know, complement the music and vice versa and design stage sets. And so we, the natural conclusion was that we would develop the video thing. When we worked on our first video, which is a thing called Passing Strangers, we worked with Russell Mulcahy, where he was very, this was his first video, I think. He did all the Duran Duran videos. He did, didn't he? eventually yeah. did all the Duran ones, he did the Vienna one. And um, when we worked with Russell, we set the parameters of what the video was going to be. We said, uh, you know, we were into photography, we said we want it in film, 16 mil, we don't want video. We're going to crop it top and bottom to make it look like cinemascope. We want it to go black and white. To, we want it grainy. We want film noir. We want all of that stuff. And that was what that was a precedent set for all of this stuff. And then, of course, when the Vienna video came out, it was it was a replication of the Passing Strangers video. And then, as you say, Spandau and Duran and Elton and everybody yes. else, McCartney, all wanted one of those, a little mini movie. So yeah, it was. It was I think it was an important time. It was another vehicle to get the music out to people. I had a conversation with the head of the label at the time when I said we wanted to make a video for Vienna, and he said, no. I said, well, don't you get it? I said, he said, it's number two. I said, well, it doesn't matter. I said, if we do a video for Vienna, we control how the image is, how the look is in every crap television show in Europe. And because what you're doing is saying to the, the director of that program, there's five minutes you don't have to think of. Here's five minutes of quality 
television, you could just slot into your programme. Right. And eventually they kind of got it. So the artist talking the record company into doing it is mad. Plus you're selling selling quantities of records in countries that you'd never have to visit, that you would never reach, even if you'd spent the entire life touring out there. Uh, well, it, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a massive thing. It was the start yeah. of this whole the whole video uh, revolution, which burnt itself out yeah. pretty yeah. quickly. I've got to ask you about, about three things. Yep. Um... That, that you know your, your career is is has resulted in you doing things that would have been unimaginable thirty years ago. You've been on This Is Your Life. Yes. How was that? It's it, like being at or, your own funeral. And how, um, how, how did they how did they spring it on you? Was it on the I'd, Johnny Walker show or something? I, yeah, I had I had um, I had stung Geldof uh, a, a year before. And uh, because it, it, he, they were scared he was going to tell them where to go. And uh, they thought he wouldn't if I was there. I don't know why. Um, and um, I was on the Johnny Walker show. Uh, I, not, I don't think it was being broadcast. I'm not trying to pre-record no, no, or something. Yeah. Set up on the Johnny Walker show. And I was chatting about the Band-Aid song. And he said, oh, play me a bit of the Band-Aid song. I'm playing it. And out the corner of my eye walks, and walks Geldof. And he says, I got you, you bastard. And that was it. So, uh, you know, this is your life. Next thing, and you're being whisked off to, um, you know, this wake. Uh, <laughs> Everyone says really nice things about you, you know. The weird thing, I, I was looking at it today, and what I couldn't get over is when you appear on the set, you're surrounded by your top showbiz mates, including Bruno Brooks, who's going, you know. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't think Mitch and Bruno Brooks know each other too well. But, you know, that's yeah, the, well, that's you the know. way it works. I beat you also, you, Celebrity MasterChef? Hey, my man of many talents. What can I tell you? Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, there's something bizarre about our industry. Um, I think since the death of the, you know, people buying singles, records, whatever, the, the, whole, the whole file sharing thing, people try and find other routes for you to promote yourself. So I've been asked on numerous occasions to go to the jungle or do some ballroom dancing. Right. You know, all of which had, you know, resounding no's attached to them. The jungle doesn't tempt you. Funnily enough, no. Significant amount of money involved. Well, I don't even want one of those flapjacks there. Never mind something that walks out. <laughs> so, so my agent got fed up with this. He said, "Well, what would you do?" And I, and I just said, "Well, I, I, I watch, you know, MasterChef. I like that." And he came back twenty minutes later and said, "Right, you're on. You're put on your, it. Put your money where your <laughs> mouth is." What's cooking? <laughs> <laughs> and so I got a picture of you here with 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 Kate Bush. You, you must have had your picturing with a staggering range of very famous people. Who's the most extraordinary one where you kind of look at and think, I can't believe I met so-and-so? Well, that's not bad. That no, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Nothing else. Okay. I, t I tell my kids, this is when we were going out together. You know, right. so. yeah. <laughs> she wouldn't leave me alone. She was besotted. <laughs> You you wrote your autobiography, uh, you know, uh, well, ten years ago now. Is it ten more? Years? Yeah, it's more than ten years, years ago. I mean, do you feel like adding to it? Well, I have. It's one of the. It's, as long as you wake up in the morning, things happen. So rather than starting all over again, you just add bits to it. And I, have, I haven't done it for a while. Uh, I think the last the last edition was maybe ten, twelve years ago. Whatever. Right, right. But uh, but yeah, things things happen. As you said earlier. You couldn't write this down as a film script. You know, the stuff that happens 
is unbelievable. And I don't plan any of it. It just kind of comes my way. But you've planned the next, you know, six months or whatever. You know what you're doing. You know, yeah. you've, got a, you've got a full diary. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think these days especially, uh, you know, everyone's out touring because uh, there's no, you, you can't generate income from uh, records anymore. So everybody and his brother's out touring. So you have to book things way in advance. So uh, this year, I, weirdly, and it's not something I've ever done before, I'm doing this question and answer, songs question and answer tour. Um, it's like 16, 18 dates around the UK. Very loose, very casual, chatting to an audience, taking questions, playing with a couple of multi-instrumentalist guys with me, the Indie Electric Company. They're phenomenal young guys. Um, and then celebrating uh, 1980, uh, the, 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 doing the entire VN album and uh, selected uh, bits from the Visage album. I'd say I was going to play the entire Visage album, but I listened to it recently. It's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've, among your children are musicians, is that, is that fair? My so, oldest daughter uh, had herself a top 40 record, yeah, <clears throat> in, the, in a band she was in when she was 17. I... I um, I, I, I said to her, she told me she wanted to join this band and, and make this record. And I thought, well, you could have done that on a state education. I've just paid a fortune for your education. <laughs> and you're going to join a band. You know, I did it for free. Um, so, yeah, she... she What's the band called? It was called, it was called The Faders. And uh, a song called No Sleep Tonight. And it was a, a proper band. In fact, the, 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 the three girls... And the drummer's now playing with Simple Minds. Um, right. So really great, great band. Um, and, it, you know, it went the way of all things. You know, you make an album and then nobody, the second single doesn't do it, the album shelved and you're washed up by the time you're 18, 19. Um, so she went to the dark side. She worked for an agent. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were, you know, talking to your, you know, your... your 15-year-old equivalent now coming mm. out of Glasgow, what, what advice would you give anybody? Starting um, in the music business. <clears throat> well, if, if to advise myself, I'd advise myself not to write songs in such stupidly high keys because you're going to be singing them in 40 years' time. <laughs> <coughs> so all those Sparks covers at least uh, got you uh, off to the right start. I can still get <laughs> yeah. I've got to take a run at it these days. Or I still get <laughs> um, write uh, and write, and then when you're tired, write and write some more because that's the key to it all. You know, if you write the songs, you can control your career. And you can do it from, you know, behind a microphone or in front of a microphone or nowhere near a microphone. So it's a, it's a creative art that you can't be taught. You only do it by starting and writing really crap things and hopefully get better at it. So the writing is the absolute heart of everything. If you can, a bit like if Spielberg can make you, you know, scared of a big bit of rubber in the water and make you cry at another bit of rubber that's come from another planet. That's what you need to do with songs. You need to touch somebody's heartstrings. You've got to, if you're honest and, and straight about what you're writing, someone somewhere is going to get it and it's going to resonate with them. And that could change somebody's life. Ladies and gentlemen, Mijio. Thank you. This podcast much. was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.